the Lord be with you. Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for this, your day, Sunday, a day to worship you and learn from you. And so we ask even now as we um, come to learn and hear about um, your word and um, some of the ways your word is portrayed, we ask, Lord, would you transform our hearts? Even as we look at these images on stone, would you cause our hearts to become um, liquid stone, warm and transformative, transformed by your love? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So most, um, well, it just so happened that, that as my sermon was coming together this morning, or it was a while ago, but this morning, the sermon from this morning, that I realized that I was actually referencing something that I've been referencing in the last few weeks. It must have been on the brain. Isn't that how the brain works? But so the last few weeks, this is my third in a f- series of three classes using um, photos from uh, pilgrimages that I have had the opportunity to take over the course of the last four years. So, and one of the things I had didn't say in my sermon, but that I've said before in here, is that I am totally a spoiled brat because um, the single one of my parents for adult children. And so when they like to travel, they want to have someone go with them. And none of my sisters or my brother can go because of all the children at home. And so I get to go on all these great trips. So I've been very spoiled by that. I've been to um, England, Ireland, Scotland, and France over the last few years. And um, today, I was, we looked first at um, conversion and baptism in early Europe and what that looked like in those early centuries and leading up to um, the year 1000 in the British Isles in France. Um, And then last week we looked at um, Celtic Christianity and what what we could learn from history, what God did um, in history for the Celtic peoples and then how um, we can pray that he would do it again um, for those around us who haven't yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ. So we talked about that. We talked about monasticism as well in um, that early era and how that grassroots movement, that community-oriented faith really drew people in to be able to hear the gospel and to have lives that were transformed by the gospel. So now today, one of the things that marks that early period, and by early I mean as soon as it got to the British, as soon as the gospel got to the British, British Isles into France, or in France first, of course, and then later on Britain, and then later on Ireland and Scotland. We see that um, very early on there is artwork that is done in stone, sculptures, um, and even things that you would see behind an altar in a church. And some of these early stone sculptures are so beautiful, and they just captured my imagination, and they were. Um, they were so. It was such a devotional experience for me to view them and just see how beautiful they were and how they told the story of um, the gospel, the story of the Christian story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. So I don't know if you realize this, but this is going to be one of those hold on to your hat kind of classes because I'm going to take you from Genesis to Revelation, looking at some of these sculptures that I've had the benefit of seeing over the course of the years. So um, one thing to remember when we look at these, and this is kind of exciting, I find this very exciting for us today, and that is that um, post-literate culture is very similar in many ways to pre-literate culture. And when you look at the great cathedrals of Europe or the artwork that existed throughout the Christian ages, throughout the centuries of the Christian faith, the artwork was not just meant to be beautiful, but to be true as well, to point towards the truth of the Christian message. 
And that by doing that, by telling the story through pictures, the hope was that those who could not yet read, and most people could not read, would be able to learn about Jesus and, um, and have their hearts transformed. So there's that sense in which these visual pictures in stone tell us the story of the gospel. And that's important for us today because we're actually moving towards being post-literate. Um, have you heard this? Have you heard anyone say this about us as a culture? Well, the more we move things to online, the more we are obsessed with our media, our TV, the Internet, with all of the pictures and the movies and the TV shows that capture our imaginations, the, we, we actually lose, it's not that we lose our literacy, but that um, pictures mean a lot to us. And pictures move us, and pictures speak to us. And so there is a case to be made for a revival of the arts and of Christians um, working in the arts, arts, working to make their own show, TV shows and films and um, visual art and dance and music and all of those good things that pe- speak to people in um, in right brain kinds of ways. Okay, so that um, what we're going to be looking at are mostly. Um, Romanesque and pre-Romanesque stone sculpture and painting that depict biblical truths, although you'll see that I sneak in sometimes a piece that I really like that's not super early. So I'll I'll draw your attention to those. So starting out, um, the Christian story in stone, proof, there's proof that that I really did this, there I am with with my mother. Um, with starting out, and I'm going to go, I'm not going in any way that will make sense as far as my travels, um, but this was something, but I'm going to go in terms of the chronology of the Bible, the, the start from Genesis to Revelation. Here we see Eve, and as we read in Scripture, in Genesis 1, God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2, we see God making Adam and Eve in his image and telling them um, that all of the fruit of the trees of the garden was for their eating. They, they could just eat and enjoy in the garden, enjoy also the presence of God with them. But there was one thing they could not do, and that was to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, um, as we know that old story, that old, old story of how sin entered the world, um, Eve and Adam both ate that fruit. First Eve and then Adam. And here, you can tell it's a Romanesque sculpture because of the eyes. Aren't they kind of creepy looking? But they're so, um, they look right out at you. Not here because she's not looking at you. But they, I think her eyes do convey a sense of apathy almost and despair, even as she's reaching out. And her act of disobedience, and um, scriptures point to this, and the great theologians, especially Luther, has talked about sin. Sin really starts with disbelief, unbelief. Did God really say is what the serpent said. And she, for, she doubted God's word. She doubted the word of God. And she doubted God's goodness, that his commandment was for her benefit and for the benefit of her husband, Adam. So there she is doubting, looking away, almost in denial of what she's actually doing, almost pretending as though she's not doing what she's doing. Um, and you see her reach down. It's almost too as though she's trapped do you see how the vegetation seems to be holding on to her? Um, she's ensnared by sin. Um, and so upon eating of the fruit of the knowledge of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and then Eve and, uh, or Eve and then Adam fell into sin. Sin entered the world, and we see um, Genesis says she took the fruit and ate and gave some to her husband, and he ate, and their eyes were opened. Sin 
entered the world, so too did enmity and strife. Because enmity entered into their own relationship with each other, into their relationship with God, into their relationship with the good creation that God had placed them in. In this particular one, this is in France. This is the capital stone at the top of a pillar in a big, um, a big church in Vézelay, dedicated St. Mary Magdalene. Um, but here you see Adam is sort of nonchalant a little bit over there. She is taking the fruit. I love that the fruit here is not an apple. I've heard some people say that um, an apple might have been too easy to eat, that um, some people have thought, oh, what if it was um, like a pomegranate, something that you really had to persist <coughs> in eating, that persistence in disobedience. Um, whatever that fruit is, we're not quite clear what it is, but it looks as though it would have involved some resolve to eat it. Um, and then we see in this one also the snake is there entwining down. You see it entwined down to her leg. Sin entered the world. But, okay, so we're, uh, God does not leave us there, thank goodness. So we find as we read through scripture, as we find as we read through Genesis, Genesis is one of the great reads. If you've read the Bible in a year, when you look back, Genesis is like, yeah, I want to read that again and again and again and again. And that's where we see um, all of uh, so much that God reveals to us about his purposes, about our past as human beings, and about his purposes for the human race. What we see is that God's, God does not leave us there. God does not leave us in sin. As humanity, we're not left in the garden with that enmity. They were kicked out of the garden, but God's plan for redemption began immediately upon that in order to restore their relationship with him. Um, he begins to choose certain people, and he chooses one family, and I talked about this in my sermon this morning. He chooses one family through whom to bless all the nations of the world. He chooses Abraham and his offspring to be um, like a light, to be a way for other people to know about God and his character. So we see there's another one. There's, it's hard to find Old Testament sculptures um, in the Middle Ages. They didn't engage. There's a lot of Adam and Eve. There's a lot of other things. Once we get to the New Testament, you'll see that there's a lot of stuff. But here's a particularly beautiful one that we found. This is that same church as that one. You can just see there's a little more light in this photo. Here you see Jacob on the left. And Jacob is Abraham's offspring. And remember that Jacob claimed the blessing. He was the younger son, but he fought. He strove for that blessing from God. He desired to be blessed by God and to have his offspring blessed by God. And he even resorted to a little bit of um, uh, deceit in order to do that. But you see in, um, in Genesis, it's Genesis 32, that he he has been away in a far country. He has been um, learning and serving his uncle Laban. And he has now wives and children. And he is returning home. And he is about to cross the river to go back into his homeland. And his brother, whom he has greatly wronged, is on the other side of the river. And Jacob is troubled. He um, sends his whole family ahead of him. And he stays behind. And he dreams. And in his dream, he wrestles. He wrestles with an angel and he wrestles with an angel he strives with God and he will not let the angel go he persists and eventually as he's holding on to this angel he come, he asks the here's another it's the same one you can just see the light and the shadow the angel he asks the angel to bless him and the angel blesses him sorry it's a little hard to see all of his fingers there at the top of the picture 
Um, but the angel blesses him, and from that point on, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He strives with God is the meaning of that name, but it's also understood as meaning God strives. God strives on behalf of his people. God strives on behalf of Jacob and his descendants. And so as we know, as um, history goes on, biblical history goes on, one of, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, everybody knows this story, and actually uh, Craig is teaching on this right now in the dean's class. Uh, J- Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt out of the jealousy of his brothers. We see in Genesis 37, he's sold into slavery. And yet even in the midst of adversity, God establishes him there. He becomes great. God uses him not just to save the people of Egypt, but to save the people all around the Mediterranean basin from a great famine. And when Joseph becomes great, then doesn't his whole family go down? His brothers come down to receive food from Egypt because of Joseph's wisdom. He had had this food stored up. When they come down, there's reconciliation. The relationship between these brothers is restored. And the brothers, um, all of the 12 sons of Jacob, all of his descendants, go down into Egypt. And as we know there, I'm going to start asking some of the children. You can tell us all our Bible stories. I bet you can. (laughs) What happens next? Anybody remember? Yeah, you want to try it? They ask for food. That's right. That's right. You want to try too? Tell us. And well, uh, as they're leaving, um, Joseph hides a goblet in a bag of one of his youngest brothers. That's right. And it was kind of rough, doesn't it? Isn't it? And what? And they get really scared because then he calls them out like he's going to punish them for having supposedly stolen this cup. But what ends up happening? How do they reconcile? Do they get back together again? Yeah, he looked so different. You have to imagine he was probably in that pharaoh getup, like Egyptian getup, <laughs> eyeliner, gold, all of that, right? And yet what he did was he said, you meant to do me harm, but God had a greater purpose in mind, that he was going to save all these people from this famine through me being sold into slavery. As bad as it was, God still had a good plan and a good purpose for me and for you, even though you did that to me, and to the whole world. So it's great. They end up back down there, and once the people of Israel end up in Egypt, they're there for a really long time. They're there for hundreds of years. And what happens is that the Pharaoh forgets that they are um, free people, and the Pharaoh enslaves them. And once they're enslaved, they cry out to God, and they say, have mercy on us. We're We're enslaved. We're being oppressed. And God sends a deliverer in the person of his prophet Moses. He says to Moses, the cry of the people has come to me. He says that in Exodus 3, verse 9. And so Moses goes into Egypt, and what happens, remember he, there are all those plagues, right, that through Moses God sends upon the people of Egypt. And the final plague is the worst one of all, but it's the one that causes Pharaoh to let God's people go. So there they go, and what happens, they get out to um to um, the uh, Mount Sinai, and um, as they don't quite get to Mount Sinai, they get over, and the waters um, come. They, they, the waters are parted. God parts the waters as the army is chasing them. Remember, and they get across on dry land. The Exodus happens, and what happens then is that um, 
then the waters come back over the Egyptian army. They're saved. They're rescued from further destruction. And I, you know, again, sorry about the dearth of Old Testament sculptures. This is more the talking part. Um, but this one is a, obviously not Romanesque, but I couldn't help it. It's a picture of Miriam. Do you see her rejoicing, um, playing the tambourine? After they, after they got onto the other side, after God delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians, I love how in Exodus it tells us that they worshipped. In Exodus 15, they worshipped. Moses sings this wonderful song of deliverance, giving glory and thanks to God. And it says also that Miriam and many of the women, all of the women, went out with tambourines, and they were dancing and rejoicing and saying, Sing to the Lord, um, for he has triumphed gloriously. gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. So there's Miriam singing and dancing joyfully. You can see the difference between this and some of these other more primitive sculptures, can't you? There's a lot of movement. She's very realistic. She's, um, her, her dress is gorgeous, right? That fabric is beautiful. It's almost as though she's going to come alive and get down from that podium and start dancing around. Well, that's not the case with a lot of the um, Romanesque stuff. You see it's almost more one-dimensional or two, I mean two-dimensional, but yet there, I find it evocative in a very primitive sense, that um, almost as though modern art is evocative by having less and being less realistic. So anyway, there's Miriam, not Romanesque. Um, and then this other chapel, this is a chapel in France, and this chapel is ancient. This was built in the 9th century. And what you see is that this, it was very much influenced by the East. Can you tell with the mosaics? It looks like something from around the Mediterranean basin, even though it's in the north of France. But here, um, once God calls his people out of Egypt, he calls them to himself and he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments as a way of, um, as a covenant with his people and as a way of showing forth his character of holiness to the nations around them. And the law is put, remember, in the Ark of the Covenant. So here's a depiction of the Ark of the Covenant in this mosaic. And the Ark of the Covenant, not only did God give to Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, but he also gave him um, a plan for building, a plan for building the tabernacle. You see here this Ark of the Covenant. Over the Ark were um, golden angels surrounding. Um, and it's so interesting to see one of the things I love about this particular um, this particular mosaic, you see here the hand of God over um, this place, that God is present. And that was how the people of Israel understood the Ark of the Covenant, that there God was present to them. There with the mercy seat over the Ark, God was present to them. And what is so beautiful about this is that there is the earthly reality. There is the golden Ark, the golden angels surrounding it. But this artist has put real angels heavenly angels arcing over this earthly reality. And that is one of the things about the Ark of the Covenant that um, in the Old Testament it is meant to point forward, to point forward to Jesus' work on our behalf. And we see this, we see this in, um, in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. The author of the letter to the Hebrews talks about this phenomenon. He talks about how um, the ark pointed forward to Jesus Christ and talked about how Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This mosaic 
talks about this very reality that there is that in the earthly ark it was actually just a copy of what was going on in heaven of the heavenly reality with these heavenly angels surrounding these man-made golden angels um, pointing forward to what Jesus would do for his people and how the ark um, gave that promise and that ex- created that expectation for God to do something like that. And it's true that, the, um, that even throughout the Pentateuch or I- in the Pentateuch there is this expectation that there would one day be a prophet even greater than Moses. And Deuteronomy 18 talks about this. Moses himself prophesied of one who would come who would be like him but greater. And he tells the people of Israel, listen to him. So there's this expectation for a coming one. There's an expectation for a great high priest who would be like Moses' brother Aaron, the first priest, and yet who would, as I just said, enter into the heavenly places. Not just earthly places made with human hands, but heavenly places as well. So moving on, we know that that expectation of the Old Testament has not only that um, that uh, judge aspect that there would be a judge and a prophet like Moses, but greater. Not only that um, that uh, sacramental aspect that there would be a priest greater than Aaron and his descendants, a great high priest once and for all. But also there's a kingly aspect. And when the Israelites asked for a king, God did not want to give them a king. But um, he gave them Saul, and then they realized, yeah, maybe this was a bad idea because Saul wasn't that great a king. And then he anointed David as king after Saul. And great David is the epitome of the great kings of Israel. He is the one that they looked back to because of his faithfulness to God, because of his tenderheartedness. So here we see him. This is that same church in Vézelay in France at the top of one of the capitals. There's this, and this... I mean, this basically these capitals—they're about—they're about 12 feet or 12 inches high. They're very small in comparison in this great enormous church, and then they are so many meters above your head that you can barely see them. So I'm sorry that the pictures are not super clear, but here you see this is David, and he's battling a lion. He's breaking the jaw of a lion, showing his faithfulness in fighting as a shepherd for his sheep and um, that looked forward to his faithfulness as a king David of course gained fame by killing um, the giant Goliath and here we see David, little David stepping up, look at him sticking his foot on Goliath's stomach getting way up there just so he can get to his head, here's the stone the stone had already made its mark but he's getting way up there to chop off great Goliath's head. Look how his hand is about the size of his head. Isn't that interesting how some uh, Romanesque sculptor did that? Uh, Probably that one was over a thousand years old. So this stone sculpture is over a thousand years old. There's also the famous incident. David is known not just for his greatness as a king, but for his tenderheartedness. He was so quick to repent And when we think of David, we remember, of course, his sin with Bathsheba. And here we see Nathan, the prophet, rebuking David for his sin of adultery and murder. And there David is turned away from him. Look how he's turned away. And that is one of the great things about David is his repentance. um, That he is um, humble even though he is king. And so we hear the words of Psalm 51, which he wrote, echo in our years when we ourselves are repenting. Um, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That call of repentance, we see David um, living out that repentance and that willingness to go low even though he was a person of great repute. Um, and that is, um, that is for us as well. His humility is um, something that we do well to take note of, that we call out to God with those same words, Have mercy on me, Lord, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. So David um, was confident of the Lord's mercy, of his willingness, his eagerness to forgive. And so um, that gets us forward now. Sometimes this, hang on, let me see if I can get this to be different. I don't know why it's cutting off the top, but it's going to bother me if it doesn't bother you. Is that, no, not that one. Now you're going to see all my pictures. <laughs> Can you see his head now? Yeah. Good. That's better. So um, we hear, you know, there's this example of the king as well as the great prophet, the priest. All of this leads us throughout the many, many centuries leading up to the New Testament to the fulfillment of the promises of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So here, of course, is Jesus enthroned. But one of the things I love about this Romanesque, this is called a tympanum, and it's almost like a blank canvas of stone that was over the top of the doors of the entrances to these great old churches. And what I love about this one is that as we approach the Gospels, as we read the Gospels throughout history, the Gospels have been likened and the Gospel writers have been likened to um, four different animals, usually with wings portrayed almost as angels, um, that proclaim, just like the angels in Revelation, proclaim about God and his goodness and his holiness. The Gospels proclaim the truth about Jesus. So here we see um, the man, the lion. The lion is Mark. The eagle is John. The ox is Luke. And the man is Matthew, representing Matthew. So you, you see those all throughout um, different, um, different ancient artworks, um, ancient Christian artworks. Here also, this is a cloister in Aix-en-Provence in the, in the cathedral there. And um, in, that, in that cloister on each one of the four corners, there was one of these gospel proclaimers. So here is John. Here is uh, Mark. You see their wings as well. They're holding on to the book that they've written. So as we read in the gospels, that great one, great David's greater son, was foretold and we know that he is born, born of Mary, born of a virgin, born of a young girl in Nazareth. And this is an ancient, this is from probably the 8th century. So old. And I'm not super partial. I love Madonnas, Madonnas and Child. This one was so interesting because the age of this sculpture has caused the faces to be worn off. But we know that there was a child, there was the child Jesus there and the way she is so simplistically presenting him, um, presenting um, this son. Look at even how her toes are slipping off the edge of the little ledge that she's been put on. So simple. I love this one because even I know it's a little weird that there aren't any faces, but I just think it gets at that sense of purity and simplicity that a lot of the later artwork um, obscures in its precision, in its 
um, natural aspects in its um, even uh, glorious gold and robes and things like that. So we, we hear about the Annunciation. The angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will expect a son, um, and the son will be called Jesus, and he will be great. Um, and we know the, the Christmas story. Here's another tympanum. If you can see it, it's hard to see, but here you see Joseph going to the innkeeper, asking for room. There's no room in the inn. They end up in the stable. It's a little hard to see that. Sorry, it was way high up, and the camera was down <coughs> way low. And then um, we hear see, see Mary seated with the child on her lap, and the Magi come to visit and bring the Christ child gifts. My favorite one, though, the favorite um, scene I've seen of Mary <laughs> is um, this manger scene. Do you see how... Um, Mary does not look like she's got it together. <laughs> it is so realistic. She is naturally wiped out. She just had a baby. She is wiped out. Do you know Joseph looks a little wiped out too? He looks like he needs a rest. And there's Jesus just over in, uh, the, in the manger, and the animals are snuffling him and wondering what's going on with him. He's not alone. The creator of the universe, they're born in a manger in Bethlehem. Mary's so tired. <laughs> Poor Mary. Um, so we know the life of Jesus. He calls out. Oh, that's an even better one. You can see the contrast. He calls out to his disciples. Oh, that's another very vague uh, scene. You can see Mary holding the child. This is on the roof of a very high ceiling. It's on the ceiling of a very high church. So I'm sorry it's so vague, but even in the places where the arches, the ribs of the arches would meet, those ancient sculptors wanted to use every little bit to tell the story of God's goodness. So there we see Mary presenting Jesus and the Magi offering gifts. Excuse me. Jesus called his disciples, um, and we see as his ministry begins that he calls them to leave everything, to go and follow him. And do you know there are not a lot of uh, ancient sculptures from the life of Jesus? We don't see a lot of his healings. We don't see a lot. Um, it's kind of hard to show Jesus teaching. How do you show the Sermon on the Mount? It's hard to make that a really good picture. So we don't see a lot of that, but we do see a lot of pictures of the different disciples. This is one of my favorite ones of Peter. Peter confessed um, when Jesus asked him, they were near Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, who do people say that I am? And he, he said, some people say this, some people say that. And then Jesus asked his disciples, he said, yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter there on Caesarea, at Caesarea Philippi um, proclaims, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it is that clear proclamation of who Jesus is, that understanding, that insight um, into who Jesus is. God has revealed to Peter who Jesus is. And Jesus responds with encouragement and enthusiasm, much the way he responded in our passage from this morning to the Canaanite woman. He responds to Peter and he says, You are Peter. He changes his name right there from Cephas to Peter. You are Peter and Peter means rock. You are Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. So I love this. This is, again, from the 10th century, 11th century. Actually, I think it's 11th century. The Romanesque eyes. Look how strong his eyes are looking out. It's a great preserved sculpture. He's holding here the church in his hand. His hand is raised in teaching the people of God. So Jesus called his disciples. He taught he healed. Here's another Peter. Peter with the keys. 
I don't like this Peter as much, so I'm going to hurry on. Um, he called his disciples, and there's one example, um, moving towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, there was a moment in Bethany, and we talk about Bethany um, in uh, Luke's Gospel, we hear about Bethany and Mary and Martha, we don't hear about Lazarus in Luke's Gospel, but in John's Gospel, in John 11, we hear about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that Lazarus is the one whom Jesus loves, and that Lazarus was sick and dying, and they called out to Jesus and asked him to come and heal him. And Jesus waited and tarried. Um, it seemed as though Jesus was saying no to them, to this plea for help. But then Jesus came down um, to Bethany. And when he went to Bethany, he actually, instead of, um, because Lazarus was al- already dead, it would seem as though he had waited so that um, the glory of God would be made manifest, not only to Mary and Martha and Lazarus who was raised, but also to all the people who came out to grieve with Mary and Martha. And the word got around. And in John's Gospel, that event, the raising of Lazarus, is what breaks, um, is the straw that breaks the camel's back as far as the religious authorities are concerned. They say, this man is too popular. He cannot continue. There's something about this man. So here, this is this amazing church in Autons, in France. It was a church dedicated to St. Lazarus. Lazarus. We don't hear about Lazarus after he was raised from the dead, do we? We don't really know what happened to him. But their church tradition said that he became a bishop. So here he is, dressed as a bishop with a mitre. And this particular tympanum and these statues, they're Romanesque. And do you know what happened? This little town didn't have that much money. And so after these were built in the 12th century, unlike many of the other great churches, when the style changed and Gothic architecture was more in style, they didn't have the money to be able to change the sculpture on their door. And so the bishop of this place was very embarrassed, and what he did was he plastered over it just so that we couldn't, well, we can't be in fashion, so forget about it. But one of the great things about that is because he plastered over it, it has been preserved, and it's in such good condition. So my parents and I, we got in very late to this town in Auton, and we were so hungry, and we went out to eat dinner. And you can go to eat dinner at 10 o'clock at night in France. That's one of the great things about France. So there we were. We'd gotten out of this restaurant. It was approaching 11 o'clock at night. And we walked out, and we were literally, it's this old medieval town. You're right up by the, the <coughs> cathedral, by the church. We walk out, and the doors, the west doors to the church are open like this. You can see all the way in. There was music. They had organ music um, flowing. You could hear it from the street. It was so loud. And it was all lit up. It was so beautiful. What was so neat about it was that there was a worshiping community there. This was not a dead place of worship, but rather people were worshiping there and they wanted to invite people in. Come in and worship with us. Come in and see what God is doing in this place, which is really rare in Europe. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. So that was with the doors open. You can see all the way into the church. We came back the next day. You can see the precision in these sculptures. They're so beautiful. This, their stare looking out is so um, evocative. It's very almost modern, isn't it? Look at um, their, the clothing is so specific. Time and pollution has worn down so many of the sculptures, but this one, do you see? Mary, Martha is there on the right, and this is from Luke's Gospel. Martha is the one who serves Right, And she said, Lord, make, get my sister to help me in the kitchen. So we see her there with a serving vessel. And we know that that's Martha with her head covered because on the other side is Mary. And Mary's hair is down. 
Her hair is long and down. Look at the folds in her dress. So beautiful. They're so precise. That's what it must have looked at like not long after they sculpted it. Um, and there she is. See her alabaster jar, which she is going to pour, break over the feet of Jesus. She will wipe his feet with her hair to anoint him for burial because the Lord gave her insight into Jesus' actions, insight into the fact that he would go to the cross and die. That's Martha, or that's Mary. Mary was also conflated with Mary Magdalene, of whom in John 20, she, um, Jesus said to her, don't touch me. The race Jesus says, don't touch me. So often when you see Mary Magdalene, she's got her hands up like, I'm not touching. I'm not touching you. I'm obeying you, Lord. Not touching you. And they conflated Mary Magdalene and Mary Bethany throughout the Middle Ages. So there's Mary Bethany not touching Jesus, even though that was Mary, Mary Magdalene. Um, these other sculptures were surrounding what they believed was a relic of... Um, of Lazarus. Who do you think that is? Martha in John 11 says, Lord, we're not, we can't move the stone in front of the tomb. It is going to smell. <laughs> they depicted her holding her nose because of the smell of the decaying Lazarus. No, we can't do that. Here's more. Um, so in John's Gospel, the. Um, I gotta hurry. John's Gospel, the. Um, the raising of Lazarus is what is the last straw. And Jesus then is, goes towards his death. Um, they are gathered together. Dis- the disciples are gathered together for Passover. Here we see them gathered for the Last Supper, holding out their hands. Here then we see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, showing them exactly what leadership looks like, that servant leadership. Look at their eyes, all looking out. He shows them what love is by washing their feet, and he shows us what love is by then going to die on the cross. This is obviously not ancient. It's more 19th century, but I love it. You see Jesus in this tomb. This is in St. David's in Wales. And the sorrow and the grief of, that he has, that he's weighed down with in Gethsemane, so clear to me in this sculpture. But there, too, is also an angel um, strengthening him, holding out a hand to him ministering to him even while he is in, in agony. And then the cross. The cross is depicted throughout Christian art, and for me, I find that the barest crosses are sometimes the most evocative. The gospel accounts say very tersely that Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified. The gospel accounts are sparse in their language and in the emotional appeal. They're very different from Mel Gibson's Passion, which is a great movie and a great thing to see, and it will move you like you have never been moved by the death of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are very simple in their telling because the event is so enormous in and of itself that an appeal to emotion is not necessary. It is. The cross is the turning point for all of human history. This is a simplistic cross from the 7th century in that church where I lost my sunglasses. <laughs> That's still that same church with a Roman arch. Here's another simplistic cross. This too, this crucifixion scene, we see some of the details that were important to them that they highlighted at that day. You can see it a little more in this one, even though it's blurrier. You see the, um, the spear of the soldier to pierce his side. Mary, his mother, John and then also someone else holding up a sponge to slake Jesus' thirst. You see angels on either side witnessing this moment in history, the most important moment in history, or 
tied with the resurrection. Here, too, on this high cross in Monster Boyce in Ireland, you see the same things that must have been important to them, too, to highlight the spear and the sponge on either side of Jesus. He is seen as being um, put upon, almost. There are all these things happening, and there he is, stuck to the cross. But he's not alone. Um, Even though there's that cry of separation, a lot of ancient sculptors depicted the Father's presence with Jesus, even at the moment of the cross. There we see the hand of God upon his son, as though the words of God at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration are being said even in this moment on the cross. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Almost too as though, here, do you see, I know it's not a sculpture, but do you see that Jesus' Jesus's hands are here? This is the Father, and his hands are holding up Jesus, even while he's on the cross. There is that sense, too, in which um, the Father's presence at the cross signifies that Jesus is truly the Son of God, as the centurion in Mark 16 confesses. That's just beautiful. Not stone. This stone capital is so bare and simplistic and yet so evocative. You see Mary on one side and John on the other side. You see the disciples in this light looking up, and that's actually something else that we'll get to in a minute. Jesus is buried, obviously not an early picture, but you see the tenderness which with the women and Joseph of Arimathea bury and and tend to the body of Jesus. And here, it's so hard to find depictions of the resurrection, but here, this is my favorite, on this same stone capital that portrayed Jesus as crucified, you see also him raised just around the corner. Jesus' resurrection is just around the corner, three days away from his burial. Sunday, Easter Sunday comes quickly, and there is Mary, Mary of Magdalene, not touching, and Jesus is saying, don't touch me. She is not touching over there. Just so interesting that this gets depicted so much. Don't touch me, and she is not touching him. Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to many witnesses. He ascended into heaven following his resurrection. This was literally the only example of the ascension that we found. They're looking up. Where did Jesus go? He went up into heaven. And that's one of the things that you do see is that often what's depicted is Jesus reigning from heaven. And Ephesians tells us this, that he is seated. He sat down at the right hand of God once salvation was accomplished. He sat down and he reigns from that right hand of God. And all of the powers and principalities of the earth are under his feet. All of the trouble and trial that we experience in this lifetime is not too much for him. Because he is there seated and enthroned. Earth is his footstool. And that was so important, especially in the Middle Ages when there was so much trouble and trial before modern medicine, there was so much heartache and death. Jesus is enthroned all appearances to the contrary, despite the appearances to the contrary. Pentecost, that's the only one I found at Pentecost, but do you see the Holy Spirit falling down on the disciples? And upon that point, the Christian age, upon the point of Pentecost, begins. You see it with a fish, And we look forward in hope to the day when the Lamb who is slain, the one who is worthy to open the scrolls, as it says in Revelation, will return. This wall painting is ancient. 
of the Lamb who is slain. But there he is, triumphant, with a flag, the Lamb in battle, in victory. And you see so many pictures of Jesus enthroned because he will come back and he will judge all humanity. Revelation says um, that all the dead will be raised and we will come before Jesus and those whose names are written in the book of life will dwell with him eternally. It's hard to see on that particular cross, but you see some of those people are headed towards Jesus. Jesus is enthroned. Some are heading towards him and others are heading away from him the sheep and the goats, those whose names are written in the red blood of Jesus Christ in the book of life uh, will dwell with him eternally. And all evil will one day uh, be completely abolished. And that's what St. Michael depicts. Whenever you see St. Michael, he's got wings and he's usually stabbing, uh, stabbing a dragon, which is the devil. St. Michael will triumph over evil. This is, um, or through St. Michael, God will once and for all defeat Satan. Um, This is a chapel dedicated to St. Michael. They're usually on high places whenever you see them. That's proof. I was there. (laughs) That's the view. I'm hurrying. This is a chapel in England, a tiny chapel from the 12th century. And they depicted in the chancel, the tiny chancel of this tiny chapel, all of these images of the New Jerusalem. There is Jesus enthroned on what's called a mandorla, enthroned in power with these angels around him that have six wings. And they even showed them calling out, just as it says in Revelation that they do. And there seated around him are the, um, are the tw- 24 elders, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Here are seated the 12 apostles. And there's the new Jerusalem. And so for us, as we go through our lives, we can approach our deaths knowing that through faith in Jesus Christ, death is not the end for us. It is the end of the old Adam. And once and for all, then only the new Adam exists. And here you see in this capital in Poitiers, what you see here is um, this dead man, this man dying on his deathbed and angels carrying his soul to be with God, represented here. And that will be true for us. We will live on eternally with Jesus. <coughs> and so we continue to preach and proclaim and this, uh, what God has done for us, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do. This particular capital is one of my favorites. It shows Moses with the grain of the Old Testament law. And that grain is being ground up in a, in a mill. And at the bottom, this is Paul. This is what they put on this capital in this medieval church. Paul there is receiving the flower of the New Testament, the good news of what God has done for us, the new way that God has made for us in Jesus Christ. And so until that day, until the day of our death, until the day that Jesus returns, we look up. Oh, you can't see it. Darn it. You look up and you proclaim him. There it is. All the way at the top, that's Canterbury Cathedral. And all the way at the top, do you see that little tiny cross, but it's huge, way up at the top, at the very top of that tower. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, your work throughout human history, your work. Um, Thank you, Lord, for coming to live and die for us, for being raised for us, that we might have a new way, a different way back to God, that we might not have to climb that ladder of self-sufficiency, but that we might simply trust in you. 
Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Send us out now to do the work that you have given us to do, to walk in the things that you have set before us with grace and with great faith. In Jesus' name, amen.